Welcome, learners and learn-it alike, to help teach. Hello and welcome to our community audio project. I am your host, editor, producer, and project co-lead, Mihai Kovasser. I'm also a youth living with a physical disability. My most formative experiences living with a disability have come in the Canadian public education system. Many students like me with physical, emotional, or mental challenges go through their years of schooling lacking the supports and accommodations they need to partake of the same opportunities offered to their peers. The vision of this project is to provide educators in Canadian classrooms, students with disabilities, and members of the general public with the tools and knowledge that they need to make our institutions more accessible and inclusive for all. Join me and a diverse cast of guests as we explore perspectives on disabilities in education in this podcast series. One last message for you teachers tuning in. Listen in each episode for our key takeaway that you can implement in your classroom today to help us further this vision. Welcome back to Help Teach. I'm here today with one of the two newest members of our Youth Leadership Committee and another great young leader that I've had the opportunity to meet who is gonna talk to us today about what it's like to advocate, not necessarily on your own behalf, but on behalf of someone else amongst a variety of other things that we'll talk about today. But without further ado, I would love to introduce to the show, Lucy Diaz. Lucy, welcome to the show. Hello, it's great to be here. Thank you very much for being here. So why don't you start as all good interviews start just give us a little bit about yourself, if you don't mind, you know, yeah. where where you're at, maybe what you're doing right now in terms of school, other involvement, uh, whatever you'd like to tell our audience. Totally. So as you already heard, my name is Lucy Diaz. I am 16 and I live in Port Quitlam, which is kind of like really close to Vancouver. And I usually advocate for physical accessibility, like accessibility in washrooms. Mm-hmm. You and I met, as I mentioned, through the Rick Hansen Foundation. We met through my committee, but I actually knew a bit about you before that. So why don't you tell us a little bit about how you got involved with RHF and how we got the chance to meet? Yeah, totally. So it was around the time where the Difference Maker of the Year award that you could send in your application. So mm-hmm. I sent in my application and you later told me that you were on the, the judging panel, right? Yeah, I was. So I sent in my application and I got the award, which was great. And then from there, I got asked if I wanted to join the committee. And of course, I said yes, because <laughs> such a great opportunity. And here I am. Absolutely. So for your audience members, I'm going to link in the episode description, the Difference Maker of the Year Awards from the Rick Hansen Foundation. Essentially, what they are is an opportunity for young leaders like Lucy, not just young leaders, but people who are working to improve accessibility in any capacity, as well as full groups or classrooms that can apply together. It's an opportunity for them to put forward their work, tell RHF and the wider community what they've been working on and be rewarded and and be acknowledged for the work that they're doing. So Lucy, yes, I read your application, full disclosure. (laughs) Uh, I was part of that process of picking and uh, uh, of course yours stood out to me. So congratulations on that. But I will be linking the award in the episode notes so that if you or anyone you know would like to apply, uh, you can actually, you can put their name forward or they can put their own name forward. So I'll have that in the description for you. 
So we'll circle back around to that in a minute. But aside from disability advocacy and RHF, uh, what, what do you like to do? So much stuff. I have too many <laughs> hobbies. Um, I really like to write, honestly. Like, mm-hmm. I really like writing, reading. It's probably what I spend most of my time doing, other than schoolwork, obviously. <laughs> of course. So 16, that puts you in the 10th grade? 11th. 11th grade. Okay, so you're turning yeah. 17. I'm tu- yeah, I'm turning 17 this year. Okay, okay. Do Next you mostly... Grade 12. Sorry? Next year is grade 12. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Nervous? Excited? Excited, yeah. Very do you excited. already have some idea of what you want to do afterwards or not quite yet? I do, actually. I've had it okay. for a long time. Uh, forensic pathology. Okay. Tell me a bit more about that. What is that? <laughs> So it's like forensics, right? Yeah. So, but forensic pathology in that case would be if there is a, it's a bit grim. If there's a homicide, then I would be doing the autopsy to find oh, out okay. why, how the person died, try to figure out who did it, things like that. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I've ever met anyone who had serious long-term plans into forensics at your age. So <laughs> good for you. What what yeah. inspired you to to want to do that? Honestly, just watching forensic files. That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. all good careers start from a TV show or a movie. Hey? T- yeah, I guess it's more like of a documentary series. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just really loved hearing the science behind all the investigations they did, and I got oh, I want to do that. Cool. That's really cool. To, to circle back a little bit to our subject from earlier, uh, amongst your many other hobbies, amongst which is forensic pathology, now that I, I know, you are, of course, an advocate for people with disabilities, like you mentioned, but especially for your sister. Is that right? Could you tell me yeah. a bit about that? So my sister has cerebral palsy, which happened at birth due to lack of oxygen, which caused brain damage. And then, so... My entire life, you know, I've been helping my mom take care of her because my mom's her main caregiver. And, you know, I love my sister a lot. My mom had started actually advocating because my sister was, you know, she's getting tall. I think she was around 10 at that age when my mom started advocating. Mm -hmm. And then my mom couldn't really balance taking care of my sister and all the advocacy work, which, as you probably know, it takes a lot of time. (laughs) That it does. Yeah, so I started helping her, and then eventually I just took over the whole thing. Okay, so what kind of obstacles do you help your sister navigate? Also, uh, what's her name, by the way, for our audience? So my sister's name is Amy, and so she requires assistance with everything, including feeding, transport, movement, everything. So I do help with all of that. Like I prepare medication, I prepare feeds, I give her the feeds. And then there's also the things where if she has a hospital trip, which unfortunately we've had a lot of those late night emergency trips to the hospital, mm-hmm. um, I stay with my sister and my mom, you know, moral support, help my mom take care of my sister so my mom can have a break. Yeah. So yeah, I just, I'm pretty much there with my sister a lot to help take care of her. Mm. You know, aside from, of course, being inspiring and a great kindness, it really speaks to me because 
I think a lot about my younger brother, right? Who uh, he doesn't have a disability, but you know, thinking back over the years, he really was there for me very often over the course of my life, you know, as, as a young person with a disability, which is funny because he's five years younger than I am. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's amazing what you can do for each other as siblings, right? With When you have yeah. a good relationship. Yeah, we do have a really good relationship. Mm-hmm. And I guess one of the things I pride myself on is how much Amy loves me and how much mm-hmm. I love her. Yeah. Uh, yeah. To, to the point, I'd say she loves me more than she loves my mom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's a clear <laughs> preference there. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> how does your mom feel about that? <laughs> Honestly, she's fine with it. She's fine with it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we'll uh, we'll get into the nitty gritty here about uh, what that is to to take care of your sister, how that advocacy looks for you. But just before we get there, I want to remind our audience that you are listening to Help Teach. And we're just going to take a little break here before moving on to our second half, talking about being nonverbal, education and advocacy on behalf of someone else. So don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Help Teach. Today, I have the pleasure of talking to Lucy Diaz, a young leader like myself, part of the Rick Hansen Youth Leadership Committee. And we're just continuing a conversation here about advocacy on behalf of your sister, Amy. Why don't you tell me a little bit about your sister and public education? Is she still in public school? She is no longer in public school for a couple of reasons Mm. but right now why don't we get into those reasons yeah so I guess one of the main things was that I guess kind of hard to explain but mentally she doesn't she can't really keep up with the grades Mm. so I'd say she'd probably stay in maybe third or fourth grade so we decided to pull her out because you know she'd be I guess a 14 year old in a class with pretty young students Mm -hmm. and then the second thing would be physical accessibility at the school Mm -hmm. where you know she's I'd say she's five six now she's she's really tall and we were having a lot of problems in terms of for example like changing her diaper at the school or that she could only spend maybe a maximum of two to three hours depending on her mood at school and then mm. we'd have to bring her back. Thankfully, we actually live across the street from the school. So okay. it wasn't that big of a trip. Yeah. But that meant that she couldn't really, I guess, take full advantage of all the resources the school could give her, of all the friendships. Because she was only there maybe two to three hours a day and maybe not even every day. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we decided to do more like homeschooling as part of an online school because they can also give us a lot of resources. Mm-hmm. So it was mo- mainly those two things. Mm-hmm. Let's pull those apart a little bit, if you don't mind. First, talking about those academic concerns, um, you mentioned to me in our sort of pre-recording chat that there weren't always very many resources available, human resources uh, at the school to work with your sister and to support her. Is that right? It's more like that Amy is very particular about mm-hmm. the people she wants to associate with. Uh, so like there are certain types of people that she will not tolerate 
and that she does not want to be around. So it takes a really long time for Amy to get used to like an EA. So she'll find one EA and she has to stick with that EA unless we want to go through another one to two year process of Amy getting close to that EA. Uh, would you mind just elaborating uh, on what an EA is for our audience? Oh, yeah. Of course. So an EA is an educational assistant, usually with experience of kids like my sister with a disability, who will help her in the classroom, let's say, I don't know, movement, or it can also be just general things in the classroom. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So sort of like a one-on-one aid, right? Yeah, it's, yeah. Yeah, basically. So aside from that, you were mentioning as well that the attitudes from teachers weren't always fantastic, okay? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because, you know, my sister, she's nonverbal, which can, like, it's a very big difference from, I guess, the typical kids that you see in a classroom. And teachers don't often have experience with that. They don't have experience communicating, because kids who are nonverbal can communicate very well. They don't have that experience, so they don't see how they could communicate. Like, for Mm -hmm. my sister, she has vocal cues and bodily cues, but teachers often don't learn them. Or maybe they can't learn them or they're not ready to learn them. Mm -hmm. And then another thing I've noticed with teachers is that the way they speak to her is very different from how they would speak to another kid. So like they might use a very childish, you know, babyish voice or they might make sentences really short. But my sister, she can understand. She can understand a conversation. And honestly, childish baby voices annoy her to no end. Mm. She hates high-pitched voices. So if you do that, you're immediately on her bad side. (laughs) I think you'd be on my bad side too. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And you mentioned an interesting word that I want to bring up Again, because I when I talk about this show and when I pitch this show to whoever I, it may be, I make sure that it's really clear that this isn't a gotcha project, as I call it. You know what I mean? This isn't the kind of show where I come on and put someone under the bus, right? Just for the sake yeah. of... Even for the sake of bringing a message forward, because I understand that there's different sides to the story, right? Mm-hmm. But you mentioned a word that I, I want to talk about a little bit, namely resistance, So obviously, learning to work with a nonverbal student, a student who has particular needs is difficult. And I think, you know, if you don't know her very well, it can take some time to get used to it, right? I don't think we're disagreeing Mm -hmm. on that. But what do you mean when you say you encountered resistance? And how often does that happen, would you say, in your experience? Yeah, so I would describe resistance as like, Let's say, for example, with a teacher, because it happens with a lot of people, but in the case of a teacher, we might bring up things in the classroom that we know would bother Amy or teaching tactics that we know would help Amy with a detailed way that Amy might prefer it, that would be great. But then instead of actually learning from that and learning from our advice, Mm. they would just, I guess, like shut down. Mm. Where maybe they, the way they've been taught to teach it doesn't include growth. It doesn't include learning new tactics, which is a very a very important thing when you're teaching a classroom of 30 kids who all come from different backgrounds, who all have different abilities and needs. It's very important to not have that resistance and to be able to grow in your teaching tactics. Mm-hmm. 
yeah, you know, you touch on a really interesting point that I was talking about with uh, Amarinder Meta, who was on the show a little while ago. She's a teacher herself, and she's a parent, a neurodiverse parent as well with students with disabilities and with children with disabilities. So we we're having this discussion about open-mindedness and, and growth. I really appreciate that you bring that up because I think a lot of teachers, I think many teachers have good intentions. I would Definitely. even venture to say most teachers have have great intentions. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's not worth our time, I think, as advocates or as people in general to assume the worst from people. But, you know, that growth mindset piece, mm-hmm. I think you're right. It seems to be, I don't know, isn't always emphasized. And it's weird as a student who grew up in the education system of the last 15, 16 years, mm-hmm. because that's been coming to play a lot more, wouldn't you say? Yeah. Yeah, I've definitely seen a way more emphasis now on like having a growth mindset and being able to have an open mind. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Apart from those academic concerns, you were mentioning some built environment concerns as well with regards to uh, your sister staying in school. And I know that's what your project was centered around when you applied for the Difference Maker Award. So do you want to talk to me a little bit about that? Yeah. So one of the major problems that or one of the major barriers that we encounter with my sister is washrooms. Mm. So she uses a diaper, which needs to be changed. But where are we going to change her? (laughs) You know, the usual accessible washroom has a toilet and it has grab bars and that's it. So for Amy, we need an adult changing table uh-huh. in order to lay her down because the other only other option would be the floor. Mm-hmm. And we also need a hoist in order to transfer her from her wheelchair to the table. Ah, uh, okay. And I feel like the hoist is the most overlooked because I've actually heard a lot more... I guess, conversation about having an adult changing table, but I've barely heard anything about hoists. If you don't have a hoist, then the person who is going to transfer is maybe the caregiver, or I guess this would be more extreme, maybe even the EA. Mm -hmm. But when you're transferring someone who is 5'6", who might be moving around, flailing, it can harm you, like your physical health. I know my mom's physical health has been damaged. My dad's physical health has been damaged from transferring my sister for 14 years. Mm. And there's a lot of studies been done that transferring someone who weighs more than I forgot how much it was, it starts to cause damage, even if you're using correct lifting techniques, which I would venture to say most people don't know. Mm. Even if you're using those techniques, you're still harming yourself. Mm. So at that point, you're not only endangering the person with disability you're endangering yourself caregivers and yeah it's just a huge mess mm. so because i am not super familiar with the technology if you have a hoist installed in a washroom is that the kind of device that for example let's say there's someone who is a wheelchair user themselves but they are functional from the trunk up, let's say. Is that something that someone could use on their own to help them transfer between wheelchair and toilet or or whatever? Yeah, definitely. Like, it's definitely not just for Amy's case where she needs complete help. It's literally, it could be anyone who is maybe unable to transfer themselves, could use the, the hoist themselves to move. And I think... 
you might need some assistance. It depends on, I think, the hoist model, but usually you do need some kind of person to move the hoist from one end of the room to the other. Ah, okay. Yeah, so it's on a track, right? So it doesn't move automatically. You would have to pull maybe the person in order to move the hoist along the track. Mm. The person would probably need at least some help, but there could be, I'm not too sure, some models of hoist where they do move automatically. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Interesting. And you managed to do some work in getting these installed, right? Mm-hmm. It was in the VC Children's Hospital. I worked with them for maybe three years in order to get those washrooms because I had heard that they were building a new building and then they were also renovating some washrooms. So I was like, great opportunity. And I started that conversation with them in order to, you know, get a washroom with an adult changing table mm-hmm. and a hoist installed. Congratulations on that. I'm sure that that is going to be a great support to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've heard from a lot of families that like who go regularly to BC Children's Hospital, they were all saying that there were no actual washrooms, but you know, finally, there's one there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. So with the last few minutes that I have here with you, I was hoping we could dive into that subject that I mentioned a couple of times now about advocating on behalf of someone else. Mm -hmm. This is something very interesting to me because I've always been a self-advocate and I've had people support me in that. Of course, my parents were a great help in that. And other leaders and professionals that I've met, they definitely helped to get my message out there. But for the most part, I, as you can tell, and as you know, I talk a lot. So I managed to put that to good use into sharing my story. But of course, not everyone can do that. And not everyone should have to do that, as I say often on this show. But I've never really talked one-on-one with someone who really is the mouthpiece let's say for a particular case someone who who has particular needs and and wants to get that message out there i was hoping we could dive into that a little bit for example how do you communicate with your sister to know that you're sharing her feelings accurately that you're respecting her wishes like how does that communication work between the two of you yeah so it's a bit complicated right mm-hmm. My sister, she doesn't know what advocacy is. Like, she doesn't understand what disability is or what even ableism is, right? Mm. She doesn't really understand a lot of that. And I don't think she's able to. But what she does understand is that she's having to be put on the floor, that mm. she can't leave the house. She understands that, that she can't have fun. So I can't really communicate about her wishes in the sense of advocacy. But I do know that she wants to go outside. I do know that she loves baby birds, that she loves touching plants, that she loves going to parks. So I see that. And I know as her caregiver, or as one of her main caregivers, that she needs these facilities. Mm. So I take that and I make that my message, that my sister is a human being who deserves to be able to leave the house, who deserves to be able to do a human bodily function, and that her rights as a child to live a life outside of four walls, a door, and a window, those rights are not being met. Mm -hmm. And that is my main message, which is why I advocate 
it's because I see that her rights are being violated. And as her big sister, I'm going to make sure that her rights are not violated. Hmm. I'm not sure if that answers the question. Yeah, absolutely. It does. That's really powerful. And I, and I really appreciate you sharing that. That resonates with me. Um, Again, as someone who really appreciates the connections that I have with my friends that have helped me and supported me over the years uh, for my brother that's done that for me, for my parents. It's, uh, I think that'll speak to a lot of people. So, so I appreciate that. Aside from our circles, what kind of reception does that get in your experience? Have you ever encountered, well, I, I mean, I shouldn't put words in your mouth, but what, what kind of experiences have you encountered in terms of doing that kind of advocacy work on, on behalf of your sister? So, I wouldn't say that anyone, I guess, is not accepting of what I'm saying because I personally don't have a disability. Mm. But I also wouldn't say that the reception is great. Mm. <laughs> it's it's not. I've had, like, a, like we said before, resistance. That comes up a lot. There's a lot of resistance when I talk because they don't think that it's important or they don't care enough to change the way they think. It doesn't really matter if I'm the one with the disability or not. Mm. They just don't, they're not interested in changing. Ah, okay, okay. Yeah, I, I appreciate the distinction because I talked a bit about that with Maggie on a previous episode about entering this disabled community as someone who isn't disabled. And I'm always curious to know if that has an impact, but I'm glad to hear that in your experience, you know, that doesn't usually factor in. Yeah, like, I guess, you know, I wouldn't know. Maybe if I did, there would be, I don't know, even less communication or maybe mm. even more stereotypes. Like, I wouldn't know. But there's definitely, I guess, a, there's still a great amount of resistance. Yeah. 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 I'm going to ask you one last question because I think this was a prominent feature of the episode and I think one that educators can learn from. So what are some tips that you have, some key takeaways, if you will, for educators with nonverbal students in the classroom or students that have an experience somewhat similar to Amy's? What would you offer them as advice? Yeah, so I think one of the main things would be maybe have a meeting before the school year with the caregivers, with the parents and with the student and learn how to properly interact with them. For example, my sister, she's nonverbal, but she has vocal cues and she has behavioral cues that'll let you know how she's feeling in very good detail. Mm. So if you can learn those beforehand and be open to remembering them, it'll make life in the classroom a lot easier where you don't have to be guessing, oh, what's going on? What will make her happy? You know. And another thing would be when you interact, make sure to interact with respect and make sure to interact in a way that you're not diminishing their dignity. Mm. So not speaking in a baby voice, not speaking as if they're not cognizant or as if they can't understand. Although that depends on the student and there's just why stressing the importance of meeting before the school year. So I'd say those are my key takeaways, if you will. <laughs> for sure, for sure. Thank you. Yeah, I think 
that idea of dignity spoke really strongly in this episode and you communicated it very very well uh, it was well articulated and, and quite powerful again we talk about good intentions as much as people mm-hmm. come into the classroom with good intentions and are largely aware of how they treat students and, and all that kind of thing this isn't necessarily to say that it's black and white either you're absolutely yeah. disrespectful or you're great at it we all have room to improve you know and we all have things to learn as i do every time i i do this show you know i'm one person with one experience mm-hmm. but many other people have had many different experiences and I learned from that and I think if we can treat people like people as we go on our journeys of learning together I think we'll all be a bit better off yeah I definitely agree with that like see them as a person it's definitely one of the main things that I guess you could say I even advocate for with the washrooms it's a person that's a person that you're not allowing to leave the house Mm. yeah for sure well Lucy, it was a pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you so much for coming out on the show. And I know Difference Maker Award was just one step on a long journey ahead of you in terms of advocacy and and all the work you're going to do. So I I wish you the best and maybe I'll have you on again sometime. Yeah, I'd love to be on again. Thank you so much for having me. You've just heard another episode of the Community Audio Project Help Teach. I'd love to give a huge thank you to my other co-leads on this project, Peyton Given, Maggie Manning, Elise Doucette, and Alexis Holmgren, all youth leaders at the Rick Hansen Foundation, who I'd also like to thank for their continued support in this initiative and others. I'd like to give a huge shout out to our community mentor for this project, Charles Kutsia. My name is Mihai Kovasser. I am your host, editor, and producer for this podcast series. You can now find all our transcripts, episode notes, and links to other resources on transistor.fm or listen to us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. If you have any questions about the show, if you'd like to offer suggestions, or you would like to be connected as a guest, you can now get in touch at helpteachpodcast at gmail.com. That's helpteachpodcast at gmail.com. Please send in any questions that you might have regarding our episodes, and we would love to address them in future ones. Tune in next time for more great conversations and key takeaways that you educators can implement in the classroom today to make it a more accessible and inclusive place for all. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time.